And we've been making our way through Genesis. And we actually come this morning to the last great section of this great book. The last story, the last of the the patriarchs that we will look at as we study the book of Genesis. Now, Genesis 36 tells us that Jacob had 12 sons. He had Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah by his wife Leah. He had Dan and Naphtali by Rachel's maid Bilhah. He had Dad and Asher by Leah's maid Zilpah and Issachar and Zebulun again by his wife Leah. And finally, last but not least, Joseph and Benjamin by Jacob's beloved Rachel. Now, if you've been studying along, you know that the ten older sons got off to a pretty ungodly start. As a matter of fact, all we really know at this point of the first ten sons of Jacob is that they've deceived, murdered, looted, and not to mention the fact that Reuben, the firstborn, has slept with his father's wife. So not a real good start for the people of Israel. Not a real auspicious beginning. But there's a bit of good news in it. And the good news is simply this. If God can love such a messed up family as the family of Israel... If he can look at this people and actually bring a Messiah through their lineage, then there's hope for a sinner like me. That God actually does have a grace and a forgiveness that is greater than anything I can imagine or deserve. But in this lineage, there is a star in all this darkness. A boy who adds greatly to the history of Israel. In fact, his name means to add to or to continue, and that is Joseph. More space is devoted to the telling of Joseph's story in Genesis than to any other individual, including Abraham himself. I believe you'll see why this morning. But I want to take a few minutes today and introduce this amazing man, this Joseph, to you. A man who knew how to live beyond all of life's circumstances. But before we get into it, let's pray. Father, you have things to show us this morning, we know. And I pray that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts and prepare us, Holy Spirit, to hear from you and to teach us as we're introduced to this great man. But Father, may we not just look on his greatness as an individual, but on the greatness that is in Joseph because of you in Joseph, because of his trust in you. May we not lift up a human father, but see how amazingly you are alive and at work in his heart. And understand, Father, that we may be also. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1, Genesis 37. Now Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned, in the land of Canaan. These are the records of the generations of Jacob. Joseph, when he was 17 years of age, was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. Now the indication there is that he was in charge. It's hard to see in the English translation, but that Joseph literally at this point is in charge of the sons of Zilpah and Bilhah, his brothers. He has some authority here. And he says, the Bible says, and Joseph brought back a bad or evil report about them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a very colored tunic. And his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers. So they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. You'd think after the favoritism shown Jacob and his family that he would have learned. Well, he didn't. And now he's showing favoritism to his son, his favorite son, Joseph. Verse 5. Then Joseph had a dream. 
And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Please, listen to this dream which I have had. For behold, we were binding sheaves together in the field, and lo, my sheep rose up, and also stood erect. And behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheep. And then his brother said to him, Are you actually going to reign over us? Or are you really going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams than for his words. Verse 9. Now he had still another dream, and related it to his brothers, and said, Lo, I have had still another dream, and behold, the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. And he related it to his father and to his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you've had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. There are six characteristics of Joseph as we introduce him this morning. Come to see a little bit of who this man is before we get into his story over the following weeks. Six characteristics I'd encourage you to jot down if you're a note taker. Six things that we can know and understand about Joseph. Six things that we can learn. Now as I've already said, Joseph knew how to live beyond all circumstance. But I'll warn you, his life isn't pretty. As a matter of fact, Joseph's life is a perfect one to hold up to just about any of our lives in terms of trauma, tragedy, and distress. If you think that you have had a hard life, and I'm not saying you haven't, I want you to look closely at the life of Joseph and understand the type of struggle that he had and see how he got through it in spite of all of his circumstances. It often seems that Joseph's life is downright cruel and unfair, But Joseph was Godwardly focused. In fact, number one on your list, Joseph was a man of intentionality. Intentionality. He was an intentional man, a focused man, a, you could say, as the buzzword tends to be today, a purpose-driven man. You may have seen it in Costco or other bookstores. Rick Warren wrote a book called The Purpose Driven Life. It's one of the hottest selling books out. People are grabbing it up by the truckloads. Why? Because everybody wants to know why we're here. What's my purpose? Now Rick Warren has come up with five purposes for the church and for a life. The bottom line is there is one. There is one purpose. And if you grab hold of this, understand this, then you, like Joseph, will be a purpose-driven or intentional person. As I've said before, Joseph's name means to add to or to continue. Now, when Rachel, his mother, named him that, she did so because he was her firstborn. And after years and years of trying to have kids and her sister having a bunch of kids and her maid and her sister's maid having all the kids, she wanted children too. She said to her husband, Jacob, give me children or I die. And Jacob says, what am I, God? I can't give you children. He got angry with her. Well, Rachel ended up having a child, Joseph. She had a second child later, Benjamin, and she did die giving birth to him. But when she had Joseph, Genesis 30:24 tells us that she named him Joseph, saying, May the Lord give me another son. In other words, Joseph wasn't enough. May the Lord add to me. May the Lord increase my family. And so she named him Joseph. Add to. Increase. Continue. But there's something else that's played out in Joseph's name as we watch his life unfold. His entire life is spent adding to the work of his father. Continuing on his father's work. I'm not talking about his father, Jacob. I'm talking about his father, God. But Joseph was an intentional man. 
That what he did, he did for the Father. He kept his eyes fixed on, focused on the Father, and knew no matter what was happening to him, that God was working out a plan. Paul describes intentional living this way. Philippians 4.11, he says, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. And I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, of both having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Him, through Christ, who strengthens me. Now, now what does Paul mean by the phrase, all things? Is he just talking about life in general? I can handle life through the strength that Jesus gives me. I can deal with the tough stuff. As long as God is with me, I can handle whatever comes my way. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about generic life. He's not talking about, hey, anybody can just bear up under pressure if they've got God on their side. He's talking about all things in terms of the Father. In terms of God. God things. I can do all things. Anything God has planned, God has set, God has in store for my life, I can do it. Through Christ who strengthens me. Gang, if you want to learn how to be content in this life alone... If you want to learn the secret of, as my father used to say, being fat, dumb, and happy. If you just want to sit back, settle in, and be comfortable, this is not a verse for you. Paul is not saying you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the happy life. He's saying you can handle anything if your life is intentional, if it is driven by God's will. And Joseph's life was... Paul says, as I strive to live a life of intentional service to the Lord, then humble means or prosperity, being filled or going hungry, having abundance or suffering need, man, it's all totally beside the point. It doesn't matter if I'm wealthy or if I'm poor. It doesn't matter if things are going great or things are going badly. I can handle it through Christ. Who strengthens me. It doesn't matter, he says. It doesn't matter if I take my meals at McDonald's or Belliasola. It doesn't matter if I drive an SUV or live in an RV. It doesn't matter if my suits are Armani or my jeans are Costco. It doesn't matter if I worship in a cathedral, a barn, or even underground. It doesn't matter. That's all just circumstance. But what matters is the will of the Father. And a life lived aligned with His will. An intentional life like Joseph's can bear up under anything. Because circumstance just doesn't matter. We will see this beautifully portrayed in Joseph's intentional life. From being his father's favorite son to quickly being sold into slavery by his own brothers. Slavery, by the way, to the Ishmaelites. We'll see him move from Potiphar's house of plenty into Pharaoh's prison. And even from prison life to becoming second in command over all of Egypt, it doesn't faze Joseph. He is an intentional man. How do we really know this? Because if you look at the end of his story, when Joseph's brothers come before the throne in Egypt, he forgives their cruelty. He forgives their anger. He forgives the fact that they sold him into slavery. Watch this. Genesis 45, verse 5. He's talking to his brothers and he says, Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Why? Because God sent me before you to preserve life. Do you think you could forgive your brothers like that? They sold you into slavery. Your family members kicked you out. Wanted nothing to do with you. Could you turn around and 20, 30, 40 years later say, Don't worry about it. It was all God's plan. 
he had something in mind here. Joseph went on in Genesis 45.7 to say, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now therefore it was not you who sent me here, but God. He was so focused on God's holy intentions, he was able to look beyond his brother's harmful intentions. It really doesn't matter what happens to you personally if your life is lived in the intentionality of the Father. Several years ago, Cheryl and I went to see a lavish production of Andrew Lloyd Webber's Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Some of you may have seen it, heard the music, lauded it. It's just a great play, and I was very excited to see it. We sat down to watch the play unfold before us, and it was colorful, and it was musical, and it was fantastic, and it was void of God. It really upset me. It was really disturbing. Because what in the Bible is an amazing story of God's faithfulness on the stage became a story of a man in a coat and completely missed the point. Gang, the story of Joseph is not a story about a coat. It's not even a story about a man. It's a story of God working out his perfect will in the life of a man who was willing to listen. But what about you? Are you living your life intentionally or are you living your life arbitrarily? Is every day just kind of as it happens? Well, we'll see what happens next. I don't know what I'm going to do tomorrow, but we'll just see what happens. Or are you focused? God, whatever you want to have happen tomorrow. A life of intentionality. Well, Joseph's life is a picture of truly intentional living. But secondly, Joseph was a man of integrity. Actually, he was a boy of integrity first. At 17 years of age, he's called a tattletale by many. Look at verse 2 of chapter 37. Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pastoring the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wife. And he brought back a bad report about them to their father. Now, I can't tell you how many commentaries I read this week that called Joseph a tattletale. He got what he deserved. Of course his brothers would be, would be bitter with him. He told on him. He was a narc, and nobody likes a narc. I think we're missing something here. I don't think Joseph was just a tattletale. I think Joseph was a man of integrity. He was a man of intentionality, but he was also a man of integrity. It's amazing to me how, how we can take things and, and twist them. But folks, living with integrity is never an easy cakewalk. It's never something that just kind of happens. It's always hard, and I guarantee you, if you try to live with integrity, you will be resented for it. Even by good people. You try to do the right thing, it's going to bug some people. You try to live with a certain standard before God, it's going to upset some. But the question is, who do you want to upset? Or actually, whose favor are you looking for? Man's or God's? Folks, while people resent integrity, God relishes it. Because God is always interested in the truth. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 7 says, He is a shield to those who walk in integrity. And Proverbs 11.3 says the integrity of the upright will guide them, but the crookedness of the treacherous will destroy them. You know what the key is to living a life of integrity? Joseph did. Joseph knew. When Potiphar's wife tried to seduce Joseph to lie with her later on in the story. Remember, Joseph ends up in Potiphar's house. Maybe you don't remember, I'll tell you. He ends up in Egypt in the house of Potiphar and he goes right up through the ranks till he is second in command over everything that Potiphar owns. The only thing Potiphar doesn't give to Joseph is his wife. And Joseph recognizes this. 
And his wife comes to Joseph at some point and says, Hey, young man, why don't you come in here and spend a little time together? She tries to seduce him, but Joseph's answer is amazing. Genesis 39, verse 9. He says, There's no one greater in this house than I. And he, Potiphar, has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against Potiphar? Oh, I'm sorry, that's not what it says. He says, how could I do this great evil and sin against God? The basis, folks, of integrity in life is not other people. It's not how you look. It's not how you come off in the world. The basis of integrity is God. God the Father. The truth is, when we steal from the ream of paper from the office, it's not the office we're stealing from. It's the Lord. When we cheat on an exam, it's not the, the, the teacher that we're fooling. It's God we're cheating. When we pull the old sleight of hand with our taxes, the IRS may not even feel it at all, and so we justify it, but God knows. And it's not that God is standing up there looking at us going, Oh, sinners! It's that the Father is interested in one thing. Truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. God embodies truth. And a life of integrity is not lived before other people. It's lived before an audience of one. That's God the Father. Our greatest reason to live with integrity has a name, and that name is Jehovah. Well, number three, Joseph was a man of intelligence. A man of intelligence. Look at verse 3, chapter 37. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was, quote, the son of his old age. Literally taken, that phrase, the son of his old age, is a son of old age. He loved Joseph more than the other kids because he was a son of old age. Gang, Joseph was wiser than his years. The phrase, the son of old age, indicates wisdom. Flip in your Bibles quickly to the book of Proverbs. Chapter 1. Proverbs chapter 1, Mike's favorite book, beginning in verse 20. Now listen closely because someone is going to speak here. Someone's going to shout out. And the voice you hear here is not the voice of God. It's the voice of wisdom. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 20. Wisdom shouts in the streets. She lifts her voice in the square. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the gates in the city, she utters her sayings. How long, O naive ones, will you love being simple-minded? And scoffers delight themselves in scoffing, and fools hate knowledge. Turn to my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. Because I called, and you refused. I stretched out my hand, and no one paid attention. And you neglected all my counsel and did not want my reproof. She goes on and says, wisdom speaking, I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your dread comes. When your dread comes like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind. When distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me. Why? Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. Listen closely here. Joseph was a man of intelligence, and in a like manner, Christianity is not a religion of fools, as some believe it is. It's not about blind faith, blind belief. It is not... As one said, 
the opiate of the masses. It's not about dumbing down so that you somehow you can find a faith in God. There is no higher faith, no higher, more intelligent purpose in your life than to follow the Lord and study the Word. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Paul said, preach the word. He said, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Now some might say, well that's fine for you Rick. You're an ordained pastor. That's what you're supposed to do. Be ready in season and out of season. Teach and and reprove and rebuke and exhort. That's, That's what the pastor does. We're missing it if that's what we think. Wednesday night, interestingly, I had three different people come up to me. We did a Bible study on Genesis 36, the lineage of Esau. And actually spent over an hour studying the lineage of Esau. And I found it fascinating. I don't know if everyone else there found it fascinating. But I found it fascinating. After the study was over, three different people came up and said, Rick, I just want to know, where did you go to seminary? (laughs) My answer is, and let me just say this clearly once and for all. I did go to an undergraduate Christian school, but I didn't go there to get a degree in Bible. I got a minor in Bible just because we had to take a certain number of classes because it was a Christian school. But I did not go to seminary. The study that I went to, the school that I went to, was the school of the Word of God. And any and everyone is invited to go there. It doesn't matter that I'm a full-time pastor. It doesn't matter that I'm an ordained guy. And we look, in the world, we look for pastors who have certain seminary training. Oh yes, he has a master, he has a PhD from this seminary. I'll tell you what, a lot of the seminaries out there just mess people up. Amen. You want some of the most liberal out there thinking, check out most of our seminaries in the world. But if you want the truth, then study the word of God. Joseph was a man of intelligence. Christianity is a religion, it's a faith, a belief system of intelligence, not stupidity. Peter puts it this way, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Now listen, he says, and do not fear their intimidation. And do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. That's an intelligent faith. Knowing why you believe what you believe. Not just believe in it. Oh, I was raised that way. You know what? If you've ever said that, and I have, that's a lame statement. That's the way I was raised. That's what my parents believe. So, God gave you a mind. Use it. And I guarantee as you dig into scripture, you will find the most amazing answers to your questions. The doubts will not increase, they will tend to disappear, and you will find yourself a more intelligent person than you were before. I was a pretty stupid guy before I really started studying the Bible. Some of you know that. God invites us all to an intelligent faith. Number four, Joseph was a man of influence. He was a man of influence. Now, you've heard the phrase, you can't keep a good man down. The truth is, you can't keep a godly man down. Go ahead and try. It can't be done. Over and over and over in Joseph's life, and you'll see this in the lives of many people in Scripture, as they're focused on God, they cannot be kept down. Daniel was another great example of that. A man of God who nobody could keep him down, no matter what happened. Throw him into the lion's den. He walks out the next day untouched. Put Joseph in slavery. And he walks to the very top in charge. A man of influence. Over and over in Joseph's life we see this. And it begins at a young age with this so-called coat of many colors. Verse 3. 
in Genesis 37. And this is interesting to me. We've all made an assumption here that is kind of a wrong assumption. It's been propagated actually by the translation in the King James Version, but also by Andrew Lloyd Webber. Verse 3 says, Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was a son of his old age, and he made him a very colored tunic. Some of your verses say a coat of many colors. Now, back when this was first translated... That phrase or that word colors was difficult to translate. It was difficult to, to describe. It was a Hebrew word that they weren't sure what it means. As a matter of fact, Martin Luther was the one who came along and translated the word. The word is pas, P-A-S. And he translated it colors, a coat of many colors. But we understand now something different about that word. The word pas simply means palm, as in the palm of your hand. As in a coat that reaches your palms. The coat that Joseph had, what was unique about it, it may have been colorful, I don't know, but that wasn't the point. The point was it was a coat with sleeves. Sleeves that went all the way out to the hand and reached to the palm. And that was unique. And that showed influence in a person's life. Why? Because most coats didn't have sleeves in those days. Most of the coats were made by a garment, a long garment that was cut in the middle for the head and put over and it hung down in front and hung down in back. Sometimes all they do is take a rope or something and tie it around the waist to cinch it off. Other times they'd stitch it up and down the sides. But most coats had no sleeves so that the shepherds and the workmen in the field could use their arms. But a man of influence, the guy on the construction site with the briefcase and the cell phone and the Oakleys, this guy had sleeves. The sleeves were actually used, I read, for putting things in. Like putting, I don't know, the clipboard to check on the guy's work. Or keeping things. And it was unusual to have a coat of sleeves. And Joseph was given that. Pos, palm, sleeves. Well, thanks for the lesson in linguistics, but why is that so significant? Because Joseph was one of authority. When Jacob gave Joseph the coat, it wasn't, Oh, I love you, son. Here's a fruit-colored coat. Here's a rainbow coat. Go out there and be flashy. That's not what it was about. It was about, son, I recognize in you integrity. And I recognize in you intentionality. And I see that you're an intelligent man. And I want you in charge. You're the boss. Here's the coat that is worn not by the worker, the underling, the hireling, or the servant. This is the coat worn by a master. Joseph was a man of influence. How'd you like to be someone of influence in your world? How would you like to, maybe you don't care so much about power or authority, but how would you like to just be able to influence someone for Jesus? To once in your life be able to stand up for Christ and, and have that impact or influence another person. Let me show you how Jacob does. Genesis 49, skipping ahead in verse 22. And Jacob is blessing Joseph as he's blessing all the sons in chapter 49, which is just an amazing chapter all by itself. But as he blesses Joseph, listen to what he says. 49 verse 22. Joseph is a fruitful vow. A fruitful bough by a spring, its branches run over a wall. The archers bitterly attacked him and shot at him and harassed him, but his bow remained firm and his arms were agile. Why? From the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. For there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the way, the stone of Israel is referring to the rock that is Jesus. 
Verse 25, from the God of your Father who helps you, and by the Almighty who blesses you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb, the blessings of your Father have surpassed the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of the one distinguished among his brothers. What was it that distinguished Joseph above his brothers, among his brothers? It was the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. The shepherd, capital S, the stone of Israel, the God of your father who helps you. The thing that made a difference in the life of Joseph was God and the relationship that he had. And if you want to be an influence on someone else, let me say evangelically, if you would like to reach someone for Jesus, the number one way to do it is focus on your relationship with God. Increase your love for Him. Spend more time with Him. Because that relationship is one that overflows and impacts and influences other people. And by the way, there's a great promise for those who seek to influence the world for Christ. Promise is found in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. It's the song of the redeemed. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain, and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Now listen, you have made them, the redeemed, those who have been saved, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. God will put you, folks, in places of influence. He'll put you into opportunities where you can influence other people for Christ, especially as He sees your intelligent faith, your integrity, your intentionality. Well, Joseph, number five, was also a man of innocence. Innocence, not often a word associated with men, but in verse 5, Genesis 37 tells us Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. Now, I heard a few of you laugh when we first read this little section. You kind of think it's funny that Joseph has this dream and he goes to his brothers and says, Hey, listen, we were finding sheep in the field and my sheep rose up and stood erect and behold, your sheep gathered around and bowed down to mine. And we laugh thinking, what brother in his right mind would tell that to his brothers? Clearly that means that he thinks that they're going to bow to him, that he's going to be greater than they are. And how arrogant is that? And again, some commentators say, oh, Joseph had some arrogance issues. I don't think so. Folks, because of what we see throughout Joseph's life, we understand this guy was innocent. Our world would call him clueless, but that's not a fair title. He couldn't even imagine that sharing this with his brothers would bring about bitterness or anger or hatred. He, he didn't seem to get it. didn't seem to understand their anger toward him. It, it didn't seem to make sense in Jacob's mind. Why? Because he had a problem. He was innocent. He was just an innocent guy. He couldn't understand bitterness and envy and jealousy because he is not that way. Now, I love this verse. We've read this a couple times lately. 2 Corinthians 5.16 Paul says, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. We recognize no one according to the flesh, which means we give people the benefit of the doubt, which means we look innocently upon other people, which means we don't judge, which means we don't look with a sly eye, carefully guarding or gauging whether or not someone's going to hurt us or go against us. We stand and live with innocence like Jacob. I don't regard anybody according to the flesh. The flesh... Regarding someone according to the flesh means watch out. Keep a sharp eye. Be careful in your relationships. Man in business, 
You've got to watch yourself. In the world, watch it. Someone's going to hurt you. Be careful. That's looking according to the flesh. But according to the Spirit, man, you get freed up from that stuff. You look with love. You look with compassion. You look by giving the benefit of the doubt to people. And Joseph is this prime example of someone who did not recognize the flesh. His influence, his integrity, even his innocence engendered hatred and envy of his older brothers. But he didn't see it. Well, just naive. Joseph was just naive. He was gullible. And you might say, if you're telling me to live like that, Rick, you're telling me to set myself up and I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to take that risk. Aren't we setting ourselves up to live innocently? Maybe so. Maybe we are. Maybe you'll be taken advantage of, made fun of, sideswiped. Maybe you will be unjustly treated, ripped off in the world. But that sounds an awful lot like Jesus. Isaiah 53 verse 7 tells us he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. It may be a worldly thing to guard against innocent thinking. But if you want to be like Jesus, look at the life of Joseph who was similar to Jesus in many ways in that he lived innocently. He couldn't imagine later on that Potiphar's wife would want to do such a terrible thing and sleep with him. And so you know what he does? It's a funny story. He's got his cloak on. I don't know if it was a sleeved one or not, but he's got this cloak on and she says, stay here, sleep with me. She makes a pass at him and he says, no, i got to get out of here and he runs and she grabs his coat and it comes off. He flies out of there. Now, innocent Joseph doesn't even think about the fact that she still has his cloak. And she uses that to nail him and he is sent to prison for it. Sideswiped. Unjustly accused. But what does God do with the innocent man? He's with him. Faithfully, constantly, God is with him. Psalm 26, verse 6 tells us, I shall wash my hands in innocence. I love this verse. I will go about your altar, O Lord, that I may proclaim with the voice of thanksgiving and declare all your wonders. And that's what innocence does. The heart that remains soft and pure and innocent goes about the altar of God, worshiping. And the heart that remains innocent declares his wonders. How's that? Folks, innocence is one of the greatest witnesses a Christian can have. Because simply by living in innocence, it declares Jesus. It points people toward the Lord. Well, Joseph's a man of intentionality, integrity, intelligence, influence, and innocence. But there's one last thing I want you to know before we finish up this morning. One last thing to jot down. Number six, Joseph was a man of Israel. He was a man of Israel. Verse 9 again tells us he had still another dream and related it to his brothers and said, Lo, I have had still another dream. And behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. One of the reasons I believe Joseph's story is the longest in Genesis is because he is a picture of Israel. He is sold into slavery, into Egypt, before being delivered, just like the people of Israel. His trials and ordeals developed discipline and trust in the Lord, just as God hoped for Israel. Joseph's hard life ultimately resulted, and don't miss this, 
The life that he lived, the pain that he suffered, the struggles he went through, ultimately resulted in the salvation of a people. Joseph recognized that his life was for the benefit of other people's lives, that he lived to save their lives. Genesis 45, 7 again, God sent me before you, Joseph said, to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. And in the same way, and don't miss this, in the same way Israel's struggle has produced salvation for all people. How's that? Gang, Joseph's dream of the sun and the moon and the eleven stars was fulfilled in miniature as his family did bow down before him. Later in life, they came before him, one the higher up in Egypt, of Pharaoh's court, and they bowed before him, lording it over or able to lord it over them. And so this dream was fulfilled in miniature. But there is a huge prophecy to be seen and understood in this dream. His dream is an even bigger prophecy of the salvation of mankind through Israel. Revelation chapter 12, and I'll just read this to you. Revelation chapter 12, and verse 1. John says, Another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems, and his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. Who is this woman? This woman that John sees this sign of, this this vision of in the heavens. Verse 1 of chapter 12 tells you, A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. People have tried to interpret this many different ways, but there is only one biblical way to interpret it. There's only one other place in all of Scripture that talks about the sun and the moon and the eleven or the twelve stars. And that's Joseph's dream. When Joseph dreams of the sun and the moon and the twelve stars, he has a dream that indicates what will happen in Israel. The people of Israel. And though Joseph himself was a son of Israel in, in that first generation, he had a dream that would impact the world and not just his family. What do you mean? Through Israel, Revelation 12:5 tells us, The male child is born. Through the woman comes a son. And that son is Jesus. And Jesus would be and is the Savior of the entire world. In the same way that Joseph endured slavery and trials throughout his life to ultimately save a people, his people, so Israel has gone through trials and tribulation through their entire existence, producing Jesus who has saved all people. As we finish out, listen to this. Joseph's life is a picture for us of intentionality and integrity and intelligence and influence and innocence. But greatest of all, Joseph's life foreshadows Israel as the bearer of salvation. Namely, Jesus the Christ. God sent Joseph ahead to save Israel in Egypt. Israel in turn bore Jesus to save people in the world and now you and I can have a similar experience in our lives. Being people who save a people. Gang, if you're a Christian this morning, God is calling you to bring a word of great deliverance to a starving people. 
Genesis 49:26. Again, Jacob is blessing Joseph, and he says, "May blessings be on the head of Joseph, and on the crown of the head of the one distinguished among his brothers." And that word crown caught my attention because there is a crown promised you and I if we live as people of integrity in the world. Intentional. Influencing others toward Jesus. If we live in innocence. If our lives are lives that touch other people, there is a promised crown. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2.19 For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at His coming? Paul says there's a crown promised. Actually, there are several crowns. It'll be a good study another time to look at all the crowns in Scripture and see what's promised to the people of God. But there's a particular crown promised for anybody who shares Jesus with someone else and that person ends up saved. And that crown is the person who gets saved. It's as if when you arrive in heaven... You find yourselves surrounded by a group of people who come to you and they say, Harold, it was you. It was that one thing you said. It it nailed me. And that was all I needed. And I'm here because of you. Harold's crown. His crown. Folks, may those who find salvation by and of your witness be your joy and your crown at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, I'm excited to get into the life of Joseph and to literally pick it apart to see what happened to him. To watch the hard times and the trials that he goes through, the pain and the despair and and the struggle. But Father, most of all, I'm excited to watch a man who doesn't fall down, but who continues to stand up, who accepts, Lord, what you give him who accepts even the bad things in his life, the circumstances, as not things to hurt him, but things that can be magnifying you. And I pray, Lord, that we will see these things as we study Joseph through the rest of the summer and learn from him. May our eyes be lifted up to one greater than Joseph, to our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray this morning. Amen.